Welcome. We want to thank all of you for tuning in to our Terrible Twos, taking stock of the U.S.-North Korea relations two years after Singapore. My name is Doug Bondo. I'm a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. We have an excellent program that uh, prepared for you. Three excellent panelists who will be speaking on these important issues. First, uh, Suzanne DiMaggio, who is with a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And she's a chairman of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. She's previously held positions at New America and the Asia Society. She's been very involved with one and a half and two track diplomacy with North Korea, which is a very important mechanism of uh, discussion that reaches governments, even if not directly through the US government. We also have Victor Cha, senior advisor and Korea chair of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's also vice dean and professor of government at Georgetown University. He advised President George W. Bush on the North Korea issue. And he almost was a U.S. ambassador in South Korea. I'll leave that story for later. You can look it up if you'd like. Almost uh, was nominated by the current president, but that didn't quite work out. He may be happy about that. I'm not sure. We also have David Kong, who is director of the Korea Studies uh, Institute at the University of Southern California. Uh, he and Victor uh, wrote a book together, uh, Nuclear North Korea, a... Uh, <laughs> Debate on Engagement Strategies. It's one a professor friend of mine says he routinely uh, assigns to his students. All of our uh, you know, panelists are extraordinarily well uh, qualified. And we, of course, are going to want to have your questions. Our panelists will start out. I will, when they finish, I will throw some questions to them and then we'll open it up to all of you. We, uh, you know, you're going to be able to offer your questions through a number of platforms, the webpage, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. You know, we ask you uh, to please give us real questions, a short. The, they're much more likely to be asked. If you ask us in a question, it's a short question and reaches, uh, you know, it helps elucidate uh, the conversation. I may end up having to batch some of those questions together if we get a lot of them, but we hope to get as, to as many as possible. Yeah, this is an extraordinary time. Two years ago, the president and uh, Kim Jong-un gave us a stunning visual of a, a summit meeting that I think most people never imagined you know, would have happened. Uh, you know, but today, uh, there seems to be great disappointment. We have the uh, talks between the US and North Korea have stalled. You know, we look at uh, North Korea and what it's saying to South Korea. It's cut off all communications. Talking about South Korea now is essentially an enemy nation, dismissing them, demanding that they cut off uh, people who send leaflets to the North, for example. We see in terms of the United States, uh, a fairly significant statement yesterday from the foreign minister of North Korea, basically saying we're not sure if it matters to be uh, a friend of uh, the um, United States anymore. You know, the statement was quite extraordinary. The uh, you know, foreign minister, Ri Song-gong, said that while people in both countries wanted peace, Washington was hell-bent. Washington was hell-bent on only exacerbating the situation. What stands out, he said, is the hope for improved uh, DPRK-US relations, which was high in the air under the global spotlight two years ago, has now been shifted into despair, characterized by spiraling deterioration. Even a slim ray of optimism for peace and prosperity on the Korean peninsula has faded away. We have uh, you know, Kim Jong-un has talked about uh, wanting to create a new strategic weapon. 
He's held meetings recently, and the uh, DPRK has said that it wants to improve its nuclear deterrent. We have uh, evidence of potential uh, testing of uh, missiles, potentially ICBMs, and also submarine-based uh, missiles. So we have a potential crisis here. What if these uh, you know, tests start occurring in the midst of a presidential campaign? You know, what is going to be happening with U.S.-North Korean relations? How do South Korean relations play into that? You know, what uh, is the prospect uh, for the future? We don't know what's going to happen in November in the election. You know, what will Joe Biden do if he's elected president? What will the President Trump do if he uh, sticks around? Will he return to this uh, diplomacy or will he view this as a failed effort? The, uh, the future, I think, is very uncertain. And uh, the real question ultimately is whoever is elected, is denuclearization a realistic possibility? I think many analysts view that as being a forlorn hope. North Korea today is a nuclear state. The question is, if it's not prepared to give up nuclear weapons, then what to do? War would be a terrible outcome. Sanctions may punish it, but probably won't force it to give up nuclear weapons. Where does diplomacy go if uh, those other options don't work? Is the U.S. prepared to live with a nuclear North Korea? And are there other options out there? Should the U.S. be willing to have diplomatic relations with a nuclear North Korea? These are the kinds of issues that we want to address. And I'm looking forward to hearing what our panelists have to say. So starting out will be Suzanne. Thank you and the Cato Institute for bringing us all together for this event. It's a pleasure to be part of it. I'm going to divide my remarks into three parts. The first will be the current state of play in US-North Korea diplomacy. Second, what to expect in the coming months through the presidential election in November. And then I'll conclude with some ideas for possible ways forward post-election. So in terms of the current state of play, here we are two years since the Singapore summit. A second summit was held in Hanoi in February 2019, and then we had a Trump-Kim handshake at the DMZ last June. And while decreasing tensions, these encounters have really produced no concrete outcomes. Uh, Kim and Trump, their meetings symbolize a breakthrough in approach. There's no question about that. But they also have revealed the limits of personality-driven diplomacy when it's not backed up by a coherent strategy, a unified and empowered negotiating team, and realistic goals. So here we are. Negotiations have hit a hard impasse. In fact, there have not been any meaningful interactions since the talks in Hanoi collapsed well over a year ago. Uh, since his appointment nearly two years ago, the U.S. lead negotiator for North Korea, Steve Began, has spent a total of only seven days engaging his counterparts. Working level talks where the nitty gritty details are hammered out have never gotten off the ground. In Hanoi, the Trump administration insisted that the North Koreans fully denuclearize before receiving any concessions also known as the Libya model, championed by John Bolton. The North Koreans responded by turning tables on the Trump administration, insisting that the U.S. meet all of Pyongyang's demands, dropping its hostile policy before they do anything on disarmament, let alone denuclearization. Both clearly are unproductive and untenable positions. Following Singapore, President Trump declared North Korea is no longer a nuclear threat. This statement signaled to Kim Jong-un that as long as he maintained a cordial stance towards Trump 
and stayed within the bounds of his red lines, meaning no nuclear tests or ICBM tests, he could more or less do whatever he wanted. He could count on Trump to downplay the threat of North Korea's nuclear arsenal and missile program. And that's exactly what he's done. Uh, since the Trump-Kim handshake at the DMZ, the North Koreans have been quite busy advancing their weapons programs throughout this period. They have ramped up short-range missile tests. They have rolled out some new weapons systems. And the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency has estimated that the North Koreans have produced enough fuel for a dozen or more new nuclear weapons. So to sum up, the past two years have been primarily pageantry very little, if any, diplomacy. In fact, I think it's a big mistake to say that diplomacy with North Korea has failed. It's more precise to say Trump's maximum pressure approach has failed. Diplomacy had very little to do with this. Kim has nothing concrete to show in terms of economic progress for his engagement with Trump. This is a problem for him, and we can talk about that more later. Um, but Kim can show he can, had a clear advancement in both his nuclear and missile programs. So what to expect in the coming months? For Trump, uh, he could really show no real progress, but what he can say is that the past two years have been relatively calm. No nuke tests, no ICBM launches, an exchange of uh, love letters. That's his framing for how to measure success. He portrays North Korea as a major foreign policy win, but beyond his base, no one really sees it that way. Uh, even so, there is no incentive for him to pursue anything prior to the election. Uh, I don't see any ability or willingness to expend any political capital on North Korea. In fact, his administration continues to double down on a failed approach. Over recent months, we've been hearing increasingly escalating language from the North Koreans, emphasizing a military buildup on the one hand, while acknowledging a return to economic bite, belt tightening. In his New Year's remarks, Kim Jong-un threatened to unveil a new strategic weapon and return to testing long-range missiles. In May, an emphasis at a meeting then, an emphasis was placed on new policies for further increasing the nuclear war deterrence of the country, but it's unclear if this was a harbinger of any imminent nuclear moves. The North Koreans have directed their ire towards Seoul by cutting off inter-Korean communications, including several hotlines, uh, shuttering the liaison office at Kaesong, and the North's leadership has said it now will treat the South as an enemy. Yesterday, uh, the North Koreans turned their attention to the United States. In a statement released to mark the two-year anniversary of the Singapore summit, Foreign Minister Ri Sun-Gwan charged the Trump administration with continuing to follow a regime of a policy of regime change aimed at isolating and suffocating North Korea, all for Trump's political achievements. He pointed to a head to something ominous. He said the secure strategic goal of the DPRK is to build up a more reliable force to cope with the long-term military threats from the US. The statement stopped short of directing any personal insults at Trump, but the writing is on the wall. The North Koreans are intent on making Trump's portrayal of his diplomacy with Kim as a foreign policy win in the lead up um, to what's shaping up to be a very tough uh, election. I should say they're intent on disrupting 
that appearance. So the noise is starting up again. The big question is, is Pyongyang preparing to stage a provocative incident prior to the election? Are they conjuring up a crisis? Uh, some potential way forward. If uh, Biden wins in November, um, and the North Koreans are preparing for this possibility. Um, as Biden enters the presidency, he'll face urgent priorities clearly on the domestic front and an array of foreign policy priorities that will require immediate attention. Arguably, it's as big as an agenda as any previous president has ever faced. He likely will not be keen to expend political capital on North Korea early on. China likely will dominate the foreign policy agenda. Returning to the Iran nuclear deal could be a quick win if it's played right. Reengaging and reassuring allies will occupy a very big portion of a new administration's time, addressing the climate crisis, preventing another global pandemic, and so forth. The North Koreans understand that this, and they will be looking for ways to move themselves to a higher position on this agenda. Likely, they'll carry out a range of activities to demand a new administration's attention, and we are already seeing the groundwork towards that end. Um, my advice to a Biden administration, if they should win, is to initiate engagement with Pyongyang before the North Koreans create a crisis. Start with the Singapore summit joint statement. If you look at it as an agreement, it is flimsy at best. So it's better to view it as a statement of principles and it's signed by Kim Jong-un. Dispatch an envoy to explore it as a potential starting point to build on and suggest a strategic approach to moving forward with diplomacy. I think it would be important for a new administration to communicate a change in approach from the Trump administration. And by that, I mean an interest in pursuing an incremental approach. Revisit the items Kim put on the table in Hanoi, codifying testing suspension, dismantlement of Yongbyon, opening liaison offices, and so forth. This is the basis of a potential interim agreement. Um, Biden has said he would be willing to meet Kim under certain, uh, certain circumstances, but not without precondition and only as part of an actual strategy that moves the ball forward. Um, the leader-to-leader -leader approach needs to be tested in a serious way. Don't close the door to it. I don't think the Trump administration fully tested it. In fact, I don't think they tested it at all in real terms. And only agree to another summit if working level talks uh, are managed to fall out, follow up on the Singapore summit, a roadmap outlining agreed upon next steps. The second scenario is if uh, President Trump wins re-election. Uh, his administration will need to reassess its options. And in order to break the stalemate, he'll have to adjust his negotiating position. It's just clear. Uh, they wasted a great deal of time sticking to a failed approach. They need to find a middle way, focused on achievable goals, incremental benchmarks, and action-for-action action approach. Most of all, they need to dispense with the pomp and the pageantry move beyond the facade of a close personal relationship. Stop communicating to the North Koreans via tweet. Empower your neighbors, I mean your negotiators, to conduct quiet diplomacy. I want to end with a um, rather pessimistic but a serious note on uh, the Trump administration if they should come back in. I have concluded some time ago that the serious level of diplomacy 
required to move the ball forward with the North Koreans is impossible with Trump at the helm. The fundamentals needed to carry out productive talks, including a coherent strategy, I don't think are within his grasp. Uh, they've never been solidified. He's never been able to uh, to solidify and empower a U.S. negotiating team. Uh, and as a result, we've never had a consistent, reliable communications channel in place with the North Koreans. Here we are two years later from Singapore, and we still don't have that. So we really need to focus attention on if Trump is uh, reelected, how do we manage those next four years uh, I'm afraid there may be a crisis situation. Uh, so that's something I think uh, we should discuss as well. But I'll stop there and I'll look forward to questions and uh, hearing the other presentations. Thank you. Well, thank you, Suzanne. You know, Victor, what is your take on our current situation? Well, thanks, Doug. Um, it's a pleasure to be here with you and with uh, Suzanne and Dave. Um, <clears throat> I, I think a lot of what I have to say overlaps with what um, Suzanne said. I mean, I think, you know, two years ago, we were all riveted on this meeting between uh, Kim and Trump in Singapore. Um, uh, it was historically unprecedented and, you know, the entire world was enraptured by it. Um, the two main takeaways, I think, from that summit uh, in retrospect was that um, it offered a great deal of legitimacy for Kim. Uh, Kim Jong-un on the world stage in the sense that up until that point, he had not been uh, outside meeting with other other leaders. Um, but in the space of a very short period of time, he met with multi multiple leaders, um, including in China, Singapore, and Vietnam, as well as multiple meetings with, uh, with the president of the United States. So it was a big legitimacy win for him, both domestically and internationally. Um, second, I mean, the, um, the second takeaway is that although as Suzanne said there was a lot of fanfare associated with the Singapore summit, <clears throat> in the end, um, there really was a lack of substance and commitment by both sides to reach a meaningful deal. Uh, Washington has not been committed to sanctions relief without assurances of complete denuclearization. Uh, and Pyongyang has amassed an arsenal of weapons and delivery systems and fissile material now that lessens the likelihood that it would commit to verifiable and complete denuclearization. So what we're left with Singapore is largely a photo op um, as opposed to meaningful steps towards achieving peace on the Korean Peninsula. Now for those of, we keep talking about the Singapore summit, for those of the viewers and listeners who don't remember what was in the Singapore joint statement. It essentially enumerated four principles of U.S.-North Korea relations. The first was a commitment to establish a new relationship, a political relationship. Second was um, efforts to build a peace regime on the Korean Peninsula, ending the Korean War. Um, third was to work towards denuclearization. And then fourth was a commitment to recovering a very specific principle, a commitment to recovering POW MIA remains, um, including the immediate repatriation of those that have already been identified. So those were sort of the four principles. And of those four, arguably only one of these has been carried out, which is the repatriation of 55 US troop POW MIA remains a month after Singapore, um, which, you know, which was important when I was in government, I actually had done the last 
PWMIA remains trip um, in 2007. So this was, you know, the first first meeting um, in uh, in 10 years to bring back remains. So it was significant in that sense. Um, but still, the vast majority of the estimated over 5,000 troop remains still remain in North Korea. There has been no progress on this issue after this initial uh, uh, repatriation. Um, and there, on the other three um, uh, issues, there's been there's been little, if no, progress on USDPRK relations, on peace regime, and on denuclearization. Um, Trump also said that he discussed the issue of human rights, uh, but the absence of any mention of that in the joint statement um, has allowed both leaders to backpedal from this issue. Um, Trump has not even appointed a U.S. special envoy for human rights in North Korea, as mandated by Congress um, in his uh, over three years in office. Um, and the failure, I mean, the, the fact that there were three meetings with the U.S. president and there was no effort to hold North Korea to account for its human rights violations was a clear win for uh, for Kim Jong-un. Um, <clears throat> despite all the warts in the Singapore summit and Trump's claimed, um, you know, a good friend relationship with Kim, the summit could be justified if it led to some cessation or rollback of North Korea's nuclear weapons and delivery systems. Kim did commit to a self-imposed moratorium on nuclear or long-range ballistic missile testing, uh, which was a win for Trump that he continues to trumpet um, as it removed the primary political accelerant for a near-war crisis like we saw in 2017, uh, Trump's first year in office when Kim did 20 ballistic missile tests and a hydrogen bomb test. But aside from this one um, concession, North Korea has continued to perfect targeting guidance and fuel capacities of their short-range missile systems. They've continued to grow their warhead stockpiles. They've continued to amass more weapons-grade fissile material. Um, in Kim's January 2020 speech uh, at the Workers' Party, he made ominous promises that ran contrary to the spirit of the Singapore Statement, including this announcement of an imminent demonstration of a new strategic weapon and also saying that he was ending the, the, the uh, testing moratorium. Um, at CSIS in the Korea chair, we produced recent satellite imagery that shows the facilities that provide the core feedstock for the nuclear fuel that's used in both the plutonium and uranium programs is uh, fully operational and growing, um, which means that there really is no, um, uh, there is no slowing down in terms of uh, um, what is necessary to operate these programs. And so this overall record doesn't reflect progress towards denuclearization in Singapore. Um, looking ahead, um, the summit's sort of underwhelming accomplishments may still be overshadowed by what is left to come in 2020. Um, um, North Korea has shown a historical tendency to ramp up provocations in U.S. presidential election years. Um, we've looked at this over, um, at CSIS, we've looked at this over 30 U.S. presidential and midterm elections, um, and there is clearly a tendency for them to do more provocations in those election years. And under Kim Jong-un, the window in which provocations occur in the run-up to and in the aftermath of elections in the U.S. has narrowed. It's gotten even, it's gotten smaller. So, um, 
And um, and what we're seeing in at the beginning of 2020, in the first quarter of 2020, actually, uh, the frequency of North Korean provocations, even though they weren't long-range ballistic missile provocations, were matching in number, at least, those of the first quarter in 2017, the fire and fury year. So they were on pace, again, to, to do a lot of provocations in 2020. And um, uh, it stopped in March, largely, I think, because everybody, all the disruption caused by COVID. But as Doug mentioned, as Doug, you mentioned in your introduction, it looks like they're doing things now, you know, there's reports about standing up new tells and with ballistic missiles on them, it looks like they may be coming back into form again um, and continuing to, to do these provocations. Um, North Korea's announcements this week of severing all the communication lines with South Korea is another ominous signal. The purpose of ramping up all these provocations would not be unique um, in the sense that they would be seeking to improve missile systems and also raising the ante. Um, for the incumbent or for a Biden pre presidency when there is an eventual cycle back to diplomacy. The one novel element in this regard um, might be um, to role assigned to the sister, Yojong, in an effort to build her leadership credentials, a prerequisite if she's eventually to replace her work alongside her brother, whose health still, I think, remains a question mark. Um, so in the end, was Singapore worth it? Um, um, pro probably yes, in the sense that the most important accomplishment of the meeting was that it provided each leader with an exit ramp from the near war crisis in 2017. Um, that was a very dangerous situation back then. The more that we learn about it through uh, writings that have come out from um, people who worked in the Trump administration, the more we see how Dangerously close, we had gotten to miscalculation and possible escalation of tensions. I was quite worried about it at the time. Um, and Singapore was part of an effort that allowed both South Korea and the United States uh, and China to get on a diplomatic track with North Korea to take us away from um, uh, the near war crisis that we had in 2017. So in that sense, it was, it, it, it served a purpose, although did not get us to where any of us want to be in terms of the diplomacy on denuclearization. Um, so with that, I'll turn it back to Doug. Well, thank you, Victor. Dave, uh, what are your thoughts? Great. Well, first, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a really a pleasure to be here with Cato and with Suzanne and with Victor. So uh, thanks again. Um, you know, I don't have a whole lot to add because I think Suzanne and Victor have done a good job. And so I thought I would try and make a couple of points about how I frame or conceptualize where we are. And then I'll focus on sort of what either a Biden or a Trump administration might be able to do going forward. Uh, because to me, uh, Singapore, although it was momentous, is really just part of the larger process, which is from the North Korean side. I go back to say 2015, 2014, perhaps even, uh, and see a very clear decision by Kim Jong-un and the North Korean regime to go nuclear, that they had been doing a very slow motion, uh, stop me before I go nuclear for decades, literally. And there was a decision they were gonna do it. And that there was a strategy in place for, they knew that the US was going to react, overreact, however you wanna call it, 
Uh, and they had a series of off-ramps, as Victor points out, uh, where they could de-escalate if they ever wanted to. Singapore is the example of that. Actually, the New Year's uh, speech of Kim Jong-un's New Year's speech of 2017 is probably the, the key point where he said, we have achieved what we want to do. Now we're willing to talk. And so they, they took this step back. Singapore was an example of that. Uh, Trump was willing to meet on his side, right? And, and again, I have long been an advocate of diplomacy. And so in that sense, I think Singapore was significant. Uh, and as Victor points out, it provided a chance for both sides to claim a victory. North Korea hasn't tested the long range missiles or a nuke since then. And so in many ways, we are in a holding pattern, a status quo pattern where both sides have backed away from dangerous rhetoric, uh, but neither side has really made a lot of progress. The reason that I think we haven't made a lot of progress is not Singapore, I think it's Hanoi. Everything I know about this is, and again, I don't have any inside information, is that the second meeting, both sides had prepared for small but significant uh, steps so that the North was expecting to uh, have uh, to do some type of dismantlement of young gun, some type of steps back from the program as they had it. The U.S. was expecting to be in doing some kind of testing. Uh, I mean, some kind of uh, um, assessments in North Korea. I'm I'm understand that there was actually discussion in DOE about which American scientists might actually go to North Korea to help dismantle Yongbyon. Both sides planned on taking some small but significant steps forward towards uh, 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 continuing the momentum. The real question is who went big? Who demanded everything first? The North Koreans say that it was the Trump administration and particularly Bolton. The Trump administration says the North Koreans demanded a complete re, uh, um, uh, removal of all sanctions. I don't know, but I do know that where we are now is where we were before, <laughs> where we've been five years before, 10 years before, we're back to maximum pressure, demands for North Korea to do everything first before we do anything at all. Uh, I even saw a CFR report today calling for increased sanctions. Um, so we've seen this, we've seen this playbook before and the, the, uh, I don't know what the word to use is depressing or sad element is everybody knows how to play this game. North Korea knows how to play. America knows how to play. We threaten, they threaten, uh, we demand them to move first. They demand us to move first. And we see both sides doing it. So we're where we are, there, there was a real window. There were a couple of years of opportunity for both sides to make some moves. And for whatever reasons, here we are. So in many ways, I see us as a return to the status quo ante, where we've always been, which is pressure, pressure, pressure. The one thing about North Korea is that pressure doesn't work. We know that pressure doesn't work. Sanctions haven't worked. More sanctions aren't gonna finally work. So the question is, what do we do? Well, in the election year, and we move to part two of what are we gonna do as we move forward is, um, hang on a sec here. Um, somebody's telling me something. Um, as we go towards, as we go forward, 
Ah, okay. As we move forward, um, what are we going to do? Well, a Trump administration during the election is probably going to be unable to focus a lot on North Korea. So we may see some short-term um, you know, instabilities from North Korea. But really the long-term is, would a Trump administration, if they win in 2020, uh, return to diplomacy or continue to maximize the pressure? My sense is that in, in a particular set of circumstances, it could go either way. Trump is clearly more willing to discuss diplomacy than almost any other modern American president, whether a, um, a Democrat or Republican. So I think that would depend very much on the personalistic relationship that Trump has or continues to have with Kim, as I think Suzanne pointed out. Uh, this is really going to be up to a president who is very difficult to see or predict what he's going to do. The thing I see about a Biden presidency is this. There was only every Democratic uh, presidential contender, except for Sanders, tried to out-tough Trump. So Biden is running on a very mainstream policy of pressure, pushing North Korea first, trying to be tougher than Trump, trying not to be seen as being soft on North Korea. My sense is that that policy, which is similar to, of course, to an Obama policy that they ended up with, is one that is a, a, a recipe for more of the status quo, more of sitting in place, more of threats, and uh, not a whole lot of progress. I would prefer that the Democratic candidate pledge to pursue diplomacy like Trump but differentiate himself from Trump with better preparation or perhaps more consistency in the application of diplomacy. Because I think it's pretty clear that pressure is not going to work and there are opportunities for diplomacy. And the question is, will either Trump or a Biden administration be prepared to actually seize those opportunities and have a consistent policy moving forward? So I am going to stop there and I look forward to the conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. I'm going to ask a couple of questions, and then I'll move to the uh, questions from you know, those who are watching us. Uh, let me ask the, the question of South Korea. You know, the President Moon has been very interested in engaging the North, has been rather frustrated by sanctions, and the North has been treating the South <coughs> extraordinarily dismissively over the last year, but certainly over the last week or so. You know, uh, going uh, you know, kind of after the issue of leafleting or people who send uh, put leaflets on balloons and send them up to the north, but particularly cutting off communication, closing the liaison office. So do you view this as being a, an attempt indirectly to influence Washington or is there something else going on here? And why don't we start in reverse order? So Dave, you want to give us a start on that and then I'll ask everyone else to chime in. Sure. Uh, the current... Uh kerfuffle over the leaflets uh, is mostly political theater on all sides. Uh, you know, the idea that these leaflets actually make a difference is probably, you know, it's highly unlikely, but there's a lot of political theater in putting balloons and sending them over the, over the DMZ. Uh, the North is happily jumping on this. Uh, so in many ways, I've, you know, we've watched this kind of fights over how we deal with North Korea play out in South Korea over the decades. Uh, and to my mind, this is a uh, minor sideshow to the actual questions of real diplomacy. Well, Victor, what are your 
Um, so like, like I said initially, I think part of this, a lot of this is being done in the name of Kim Yo-jong and, um, and Kim Yong-chul. Um, and so one of the things it, it looks like to me is that the hardliners are sort of back. I mean, Kim Yong-chul kind of disappeared after the failed Hanoi summit. Um, and he seems to be he seems to be back and and really building the credentials for the sister um, and giving her a more prominent role when he comes to South Korea. Tactically, I think the North Koreans feel they have the liberty to do this because they know that um, they can carry out these sorts of um, measures uh, and, and know that if they come back, the South Koreans uh, are going to be there waiting for them. This particular government will be there waiting for them. So I don't think they're worried that they're offending anybody on the uh, on the on the South Korean side, and then um, <clears throat> and I think you know part of it is also uh, there uh, uh, a bit of anger at South Korea that they have not been successful at convincing Trump to loosen some of the some of the sanctions. So um, so like with everything in foreign policy, international relations, there never there's never one one thing only that defines the outcome. Um, and so I think it's a it's a it's a combination of things. Having said that, um, we have seen in the past, there are periods usually be, there, there have been times in the past between June 25th, which is the 70th anniversary of the Korean War and August 15th, which is Liberation Day in South Korea, liberation from Japan and the end of the Japanese occupation, where um, we have seen North Korea engage in inter-Korean dialogue. Um, you know, um, sort of tugging on the heartstrings of Korean patriotism. So it's possible that they could do something like that as well. Um, but they're, um, but right now they look like they're cycling. You know, certainly in the direction of being a uh, much harder line for the for the reasons that David David uh, suggested. And Suzanne, what are your thoughts? Yes, yeah, so I see the North Koreans are holding any diplomacy with the South hostage to progress with the United States. And I think we need to be very clear. This is one thing I think the Trump administration has gotten really wrong, and that is the failure to support the inter-Korean reconciliation process, not the lack of emphasis on building that peace regime that was outlined in the Singapore summit declaration. Uh, if you go back in time, you'll remember that there was significant progress uh, between North and South that was made very early. Um, and it was both in people-to-people -people exchanges, economic exchanges, also military uh, in terms of um, some very good activities along the DMZ. Um, that was brought to a halt uh, due to the lack of progress in US DPRK talks. Um, and I think it really came to fruition in Hanoi when the US rejected uh, limited sanctions relief, precisely those projects that South Korea requested uh, that they wanted to permit the resumption of joint economic projects and the Trump administration wouldn't move forward on that. That was very short-sighted. It was a sure way to stifle diplomacy. I think grant, we should look at granting limited relief along these lines as precisely in line with the purpose of levying sanctions in the first place, to bring about changes in bad behavior 
and in threatening policies. So I fault the Trump administration for viewing um, South Korea and North-South reconciliation as a sideshow. It's the wrong approach. If Trump is reelected, he'll need a new approach, work closely with the South Koreans, coordinate. Um, and this is not possible if you're doubling down on a failed maximum pressure approach. Uh, the two approaches are not uh, uh, reconcilable. Uh, if President Biden comes into office, I think he'll get this. Um, I think he'll get this right away, that he will need to build up the alliance with uh, the South Koreans and certainly work together on North Korea. Thank you. Well, we are getting questions in. So I want to go to a question from uh, David from Facebook who ask, uh, you know, what are some of the achievable goals, you know, in a diplomatic process? Why don't I start with uh, Dave on this? Because I think, uh, you know, you've, you're clearly committed on the diplomatic side. And then if, if Suzanne and Victor want to come in, we can go to them as well. But uh, Dave? Sure. I think that in a lot of ways, one of the biggest problems that I think we have with U.S. policy to North Korea is that we are focused on essentially an all or nothing uh, and totally focused on denuclearization first. It's very clear that nuclear weapons are an issue, but North Korea is bigger than the nuclear problem. And so in many ways, I think putting denuclearization first harms us from making any progress on what you might call achievable other goals. And so in many ways, you know, North Korea is not a problem to be solved. It's not going away. And so one of the things I think we can do is make those small steps that were on the table in Hanoi. This is, I think, what is, to me, most disappointing, is that there were steps to move backwards. What was interesting to me in, in was the amount of pushback. The minute that Yongbyon started to get talk, put on the table was, that's not enough. And my point was always, take it and move from there rather than try and get more. I would have loved to see the young the nuclear the Yongbyon nuclear plant finally um, dismantled because in many ways, man, that is a ecological problem, not just a national security problem. That's a step forward. These are the types of things that I think that we could do that would help set up the context for uh, larger or further steps, larger goals or further steps. Well, thank you, you know, Victor. Are there some achievable goals uh, as a result of diplomacy? Um, so I think the record of diplomacy has shown that, you know, almost any administration, you know, with the possible exception of the current one, but almost any administration can get to a phase one deal, if you will, which is the idea of, you know, some sort of freeze of Yongbyon and surrounding facilities in return for some sanctions relief, getting monitors back in, um, uh, cameras back in to to ensure that there's no production going on. And so I think, you know, you can either um, the incumbent or a new administration can, if they want to uh, get to that point in a, in sort of achievable results fairly quickly, right? And, and work out a schedule for energy shipments or whatever it would bill and sanctions relief in return for holding the program um, uh, in advance. Um, <clears throat> the, um, the next step people have often talked about after that has been um, a, a full declaration for North Korea uh, and, the, and then the beginning of a verification process of that declaration, which the, um, 
last agreement has shown is not possible to do with North Korea unless there's a fundamental transformation of the political relationship. So I guess one of the things I would say here is it's not hard to get to a freeze for freeze, uh, but to get beyond that, um, um, there's going to need to be a bottom-up review and a rethink of how we transform the political relationship that goes beyond simply establishing liaison offices or things of that nature. Um, I do like the idea, and it's rare that David and I agree, but I do like the idea about looking at sort of, are there environmental rationales that need to be considered with regard to elements of the nuclear program that the United States, North Korea, South Korea, and China would agree to? It could be Yongbyon and the concern about a nuclear accident there. But the other is this, you know, this Pyongsan uranium ore concentrate plant, which, you know, which we did a study on. I mean, there, there's satellite images of the black sludge that that concentrate plant is just um, the residue that it's just black stuff that's seeping into the waters around, you know, around the Korean Peninsula. And so, you know, stopping something like that would both be environmentally sound and would also, um, you know, stop the production of the feedstock for the nuclear fuel, right? They can't make fissile material without fuel. And if you can stop the feedstock for the fuel, then, then you're, you're making progress. Suzanne. Yeah, so I think uh, the Trump administration missed big opportunities in Hanoi, as I mentioned before. Uh, certainly uh, what the North Koreans put on the table in Hanoi is worth revisiting. Yongbyon dismantlement, whatever that means, should have been explored. Um, liaison office, I think, would have been very important to establish a steady uh, channel of communication with the North Koreans, codifying the testing suspension. If we could have gotten inspectors on the ground to verify this suspension, this suspension, that would have been a big deal. And then maybe looking outside of these um, typical issues, what about creative diplomacy around COVID-19, um, exchange of uh, medical expertise um, to help North Korea deal with that challenge? Uh, I think those are the th types of things that can be explored right away. But before we even get there, whether it's a uh, re-elected Trump administration or a new Biden administration, uh, there are two things that are important, and especially for Trump. Uh, I think they had two misreadings of the North Koreans. One was they misread the North Koreans' um, threat perception. Uh, the, thinking that the North Koreans would give away their nuclear, missile, chemical, and biological weapons program, stock, lock, and barrel, was just a non-starter from get the get-go. And I think Bolton knew this, uh, and that's why he advocated for it. Um, you know, they're never going to do that. And I think since the Trump administration moved forward with the killing of uh, Qasem Soleimani, Iran's, uh, the commander of Iran's Quds Force, I mean, to the North Koreans, that looked and smelled like a decapitation exercise. That's especially uh, something that they're very threatened by. Um, so regime uh, change is still on their mind. Second was a misreading of the North Koreans. What did they want out of these negotiations? And I think on the economic front, if you look back to the Singapore summit, when they presented that very slickly produced video a promising North Korean leadership and people great riches, the kind of economic development found in Singapore. 
that was a total misreading of what the North Koreans want. Uh, that would require a political opening that would not be of any interest to Kim Jong-un. In fact, it would threaten his rule. So uh, if the Trump administration could overcome these misreadings, um, then they could have a chance to start anew. I've always thought with the approach of you know, promising uh, summer resorts in North Korea and assuming that would convince them to give up their nukes, really was akin to what they tried to do in the Middle East of essentially tell the Palestinians, never mind the political details of statehood, we will find somebody to throw mm -hmm. money at you and you shouldn't worry about the politics. But of course, it's the politics that's very powerfully animating, especially if you view the military weapons as being you know, your regime protection. We have an anonymous uh, you know, question off of Slido, which asks the uh, question of uh, what do other leaders in the region especially think about the president's attempt to forge a personal relationship with Kim Jong-un? This isn't unique to North Korea, of course. Nevertheless, it may be the most jarring of the supposed friendships there. Are other leaders supportive of that or are they uh, critical of it? Why don't I start with Victor on this one? Um, I think it's fair to say that most of the leaders in the region uh, probably supported uh, the U.S. president trying to create a relationship with the North Korean leader. Uh, no U.S. president has tried to do it before. Every agreement in the past um, has been criticized for not having the two leaders uh, agree on it. I mean, of course, letters were written by Lee, by the U.S. president and North Korean leaders to each other, but um, uh, but there was never a meeting. So in that sense, I think probably uh, every leader liked that Trump was doing that, even though Trump had his own distinct way of doing it. The one exception would probably be Japan. Uh, Prime Minister Abe was probably less uh, enamored with the idea of Trump doing this. Um, um, because, uh, you know, the, it's, a, it's a big deal for the U.S. president to, to meet the North Korean leader. And for those who don't like what he did, I think the argument would be that this was a, this was a very important chip, if you will, uh, that the United States could play uh, because the North Koreans want the legitimacy of meeting the U.S. leader. Um, and he gave it away three times for, for really nothing, for really nothing in return. Um, and, you know, I kind of maybe I agree with that a little bit, but I'm increasingly of the view that North Korea is now so confident in their own capabilities and in the growth of their programs that um, the idea of meeting with Biden or with Trump after he's reelected really doesn't matter that much for the doesn't matter that much for the North Koreans anymore. Follow up on on that one. Uh, the question is, in negotiating with North Korea. Should the U.S. basically realistically say to itself, there will be no denuclearization? We might claim that as being the ultimate objective, but far better for us to do these small steps. Hopefully, each small step will be good and have advantages, but at the end of the road is probably not a denuclearized North Korea. Rather, our hope might be that the end result is a limited nuclear arsenal, a contained North Korea. So I'm wondering, how do you all see this? Certainly, the, it is a nuclear weapon state now. So the likelihood of it giving those up strike many of us as being rather unlikely. So how do you see uh, diplomacy moving forward in this environment? So why don't I start with you, Suzanne? 
Well, I think any administration, whether it's Biden or Trump, can't go into negotiations with the North Koreans and say, we're taking off the table our desire to see you uh, relinquish your nuclear program. Um, they just simply can't do that. Uh, but what they can do is say, uh, our desire to see you relinquish your nuclear program could happen sometime down the road, uh, not necessarily point to a time. It could be two years, it could be five, it could be 10, depending on how things go. Uh, in the meantime, there are plenty of things to do uh, to accomplish, uh, to help rein in uh, the threat of North Korea. And that's what we've been missing these last two years is real diplomacy to mine the possibilities of what can be done uh, in the near term. So for example, uh, some discussions I've had with North Korean officials um, in the past, uh, they expressed a willingness to work on nonproliferation, uh, provide assurances that they won't sell or distribute uh, their nuclear technology, weapons technology to third parties, to other countries or third party groups uh, that they won't sell um, uh, any of it. I think that is the basis for uh, a good reason to talk to the North Koreans. These are the things that uh, the Trump administration never thought about exploring beyond uh, you have to give everything up up front. And those are the sort of discussions I think that can be had. Keep maintaining the long range goal and maybe uh, really in the future um, that they will give up their nuclear program, but in the meantime, not um, foregoing other opportunities to make progress. And in the process, um, you know, dealing with the contentious hostilities that underlie the uh, relationship. How do you see it? And I'll come to you right after that, Victor. Dave? Okay. Yeah, sure. No, I'm, I'm happy to let Victor go first. Go ahead. Well, Victor, you want to go? <laughs> um, Jump on in, Victor. So, so, yeah, so in answer to your question, Doug, I would say um, that I have two answers. Uh, the answer is that if, if we're in government, like if you're in government, then the answer is you continue to press on the denuclearization. You continue you know, to hammer that nail with the denuclearization hammer. Um, even if you're not making progress, you continue to talk about ramping up sanctions and not lifting sanctions uh, unless North Korea makes huge steps on denuclearization. And, and that is because that has become deeply ingrained as sort of the, the policy pathology when it comes to North Korea. And the only way that that would change is if at the very top, if the US president says, we're gonna do it a different way and I'm gonna invest time in a well thought out strategy that looks at it from a, di uh, from a completely different perspective. The problem with Trump was that he, he invested his political capital in this, but he didn't have a well thought out strategy. Right, and so then it, it so then it eventually went back to the same thing, like that Suzanne was talking about: give up all your weapons, you know, blah blah blah, as, as David always says. But um, if if you're if I'm not in government, <laughs> I would say that um, I would say it would be to again try to get to that initial first stage agreement, you know, some form of freeze for freeze, <clears throat> and then. Um, uh, in, you know, encourage inter-Korean cooperation as part of an effort to transform the overall relationship on the peninsula. Uh, 
Like, for example, if you take the assurance that Suzanne talked about, and which we I've heard from the North Koreans in negotiations, and we've heard it from them in track two, of offering non-proliferation assurances, right? Not not selling to third parties or to non-state actors, these sorts of things. Um, so given the current state of our relationship with North Korea, when the North Koreans say that, I mean, it could be an assurance, but it also could sound like a threat in the sense like, if you don't do what we want, then we might sell. And that's my whole point is that the lens or the filter through which you look at it depends on the overall political relationship. And so in order for those sorts of assurances to have diplomatic traction, it has to be contextualized in a different political relationship between these two countries, um, you know, which we don't have. And so, and, and I, I admit, the first one to admit, it's easy to say this when you're outside of government, right? It's very easy to say this. When you're in government and there's a there's a clear sort of for better or for worse policy pathology, it's much harder to break out of that. And Dave, uh, sure. I mean, what Victor said, but more eloquently than I could, is that it is unthinkable on you know essentially both left and right in in Washington policymaking circles that we that we don't push always for denuclearization. And I get that, you know, as a sort of rhetorical goal, as a, as a goal, we would want to denuclearize as many countries as possible. Uh, I think that's a great goal, but I'm not sure how realistic it is. And to make that end goal uh, come in front of a whole bunch of other ways that we can make progress, I think is, and I would use Victor as what well, I would call it a pathology of American foreign policy. Um, and I see Biden falling into it as well as, you know, uh, much of the Trump administration as well. Right. What I'd prefer to see is, look, we can deter North Korea. I'm not worried about a war starting that can work. And we should then work on not just deterring North Korea, but opening it up. If North Korea is as vulnerable as everyone thinks that is to economic influences and outside ideas, then I would prefer to see the United States not isolating North Korea and helping it out, but I would prefer to see us trying to expand market access into North Korea. I truly think that's very revolutionary. That's changing for North Korean people. And if you care about human rights, you should be trying to expand economic access and markets in North Korea. It's the best way to help the people themselves. So, I mean, I would have a very different approach, but um, there's a reason that I'm not, <laughs> I'm not in government right now. Well, Irvon Slido, asks, you know, put yourself in Kim Jong-un's position. Who do you prefer to be elected in November? Do you want another four years of our uh, current uh, administration, or are you prepared to deal with Joe Biden? Do you think that might give you more of what you want? Uh, I don't know. I'll start with Suzanne. You know, I'll probably come to all of you. I'm curious what you all think. Well, that's a very good question that I've actually thought about. And I think um, probably in the first instance, the North Koreans would say Trump, that they'd like to see him um, come back into office because they've met him. Uh, they might think after another four years, he'll come to his senses. He'll adopt a more flexible approach. They already have a good relationship between the two leaders, even though it's superficial. So that would be my first answer at a superficial level. But I think, you know, after Hanoi, I think things changed for the North Koreans. And that's when they put in place a different strategic outlook vis-a-vis -vis President Trump. Uh, they made the decision then to um, 
not uh, seriously negotiate anymore. Uh, when Trump, uh, when Kim returned home from Hanoi empty-handed, I mean, keep in mind before he left for, for Hanoi, he put himself out there on the line that uh, he was engaging Trump to bring about economic progress, not the big riches of turning North Korea into Singapore, but really uh, to help the economy along, uh, uh, getting it out of its dire straits. And he had to come home from Hanoi uh, humiliated, empty-handed. Um, so I think uh, that still stings. Uh, probably there's a lot of activity in Pyongyang right now, uh, analyzing uh, the Biden administration, what that could look like, what he's saying. Uh, Biden is being harsh in his tone towards Kim Jong-un. I'm sure they're not appreciating that. But uh, if you look at the Biden statements, they leave the door open for um, diplomacy with North Korea. Uh, and they also leave the door open to a possible Biden-Kim summit. Uh, they're not saying no. They just are saying they want a real dipl diplomatic pro process in place. Um, so they may be looking to Biden as a more serious player, someone who could actually deliver a deal. And don't forget, someone has to manage Congress on this as well. Um, so in that sense, I think if they give it a, a longer, more serious analysis, uh, they'll probably prefer Biden. What do you think? Um, so I think that, um, so let me just, for argument's sake, take the opposing view. I think that if, uh, uh, if they thought about dealing with the Biden administration, I think they would say it's too difficult. They'll want a real negotiation. Uh, they'll have real negotiators. Uh, there'll be very little access at the top, uh, like they had with Trump, uh, to short circuit, you know, the the working level, which is always going to be harder. Um, and uh, I think they would just find it very difficult. And and to get to the things that they want, which is sanctions relief, and I think, I think it's just very, it's going to be very difficult. Um, not that uh, they have that much confidence in Trump, but I think they, I I think that they think that they have one thing in a second term in Trump that they could not get in Biden. And that would be a weakening of the U.S.-South Korea alliance. Um, <clears throat> you know, Trump is already talking about like pulling a portion of the troops out of Germany. You know, this cost-sharing agreement between the United States and South Korea is a complete wreck right now with no solution in sight. Um, um, he may start pulling troops out of Korea in a second term. Um, um, so, you know, I think that is the, even if, even if they may be caught in sort of this very strange diplomacy with the second term in Trump, I think the big dividend for them that they're hoping for is a weakening of the alliance. Well, Show Up America on Twitter asks about the role of China, that, uh, you know, Biden was part of an administration that had a pivot to Asia and it to basically counteract China. And of course, if we look at the Trump-China relationship, at the moment, certainly that's not very good. It's hard to know what the president will decide once, if he is reelected. But how do you see China's involvement? Is China going to be helpful in, you know, in trying to deal with North Korea, or is it going to be a problem? That, uh, so I, I'm not sure who to start with. So I'll start with Dave, and uh, then I'll go to the, the other two of you. So Dave? Yeah, you know, almost my entire career since the 90s uh, 
I have heard claims that the North Korea-China relationship is weakening. This time it's weakening. Now China is going to turn on North Korea. Now China is so frustrated they're going to give up on North Korea. Oh. And so far, I don't see anything more than the occasional small rhetoric for this. Uh, and so one of the things that I find interesting is how strong that relationship remains. When Kim Jong-un uh, was going to meet uh, in Singapore, he had, I think he had two summits right before with uh, Xi Jinping. I mean, with Xi, he wasn't, he was shoring up his relationship. So I think that in many ways, uh, North Korea has um, a stable relationship with China and China knows that. China knows how to handle North Korea and even Kim Jong-un. So I think that in that sense, uh, China is aiming at diplomacy. They don't necessarily want a nuclear North Korea, but they're not willing to give up a stable North Korea in order to get denuclearization. So I think we are in many ways where we were with China five or 10 years ago. Suzanne, what are your thoughts? second Trump administration or a new Biden administration, they really have to bring China on board and better coordinate with them. Right now, the Chinese are out front saying uh, the U.S. needs to reduce sanctions along uh, with the Russians. They're saying this. We've clearly seen that the Chinese are not enforcing the sanctions. It's a really leaky boat now. And if you look back, um, I think there were three major sets of U.N. Security Council sanctions beginning in 2017 uh, that the Chinese fully supported, some, some of which was very surprising to the North Koreans. Uh, the building out of this sanctions architecture uh, tracked along with, and it also contributed to the DPRK's increasing international isolation, especially as the standoff between us and the North Koreans reached its height during fire and fury. Uh, and, and again, I think the Trump administration misread a lot. They misread the importance of this international pressure, of this consensus. They missed a window of opportunity to go into negotiations with Kim, use that unity, use that leverage, and take some initial steps in exchange for limited sanctions relief. And now the Chinese have since loosened the sanctions uh, enforcement the recent UN panel of experts report really presents a very clear picture of how they're doing this. So we've seen the end of maximum pressure. Uh, that consensus has been completely squandered. Um, I think if we look in hindsight, the U.S. was continuing to push down on a uh, push a, on a top-down, all-or-nothing approach, um, and it had already started to wane. So going smaller, moving sooner, certainly would have given the U.S. a better chance to achieve some progress. Is it possible to get that back at this stage? I don't know, but I think it would have to be uh, tried. You know, Victor, what are your thoughts on China's role? Um, <clears throat> so I think, you know, um, for, well, first, China's, the U.S. and China's ability to cooperate on North Korea operates within a very limited band. I think it's it's um, constrained on two sides. On the one side, the um, uh, uh, China will help to um, bring North Korea back to the negotiating table when it thinks, sees things going off the rails. 
uh, and possible crisis on the peninsula or possible confrontation, they will try to bring things back to a negotiation. But once the everybody's back at the table, China's not going to work very hard to push the North Koreans to make an agreement and instel, instead will then put all the pressure on the United States to give in to North Korea's demands to reach an agreement. So, so I think there it's really bounded the amount of cooperation. Now that that sort of that I would say is the um, uh, the um, sort of the boilerplate. Um, what you add to that is um, increasingly more U.S. sanctions now that are moving in the direction of secondary sanctions that are targeting third parties, including China. The last set of sanctions clearly um, was targeting. Uh, uh, third parties, including uh, Huawei and ZTE. Um, and so that's, this is going to be more sanctioned against China now and not just, uh, not just on North Korea. Um, and I don't foresee in the second Trump administration uh, any um, less, even if individuals change, any less, lessening of the policy momentum in the direction of decoupling from China. Um, <clears throat> on a whole host of issues, uh, and that will also make it very hard for the two uh, for the two to work to work on North Korea. So um, uh, uh, it, I, I'm not very confident that we're going to see a lot of progress between the U.S. and and China on on North Korea. Well, Heinz Gartner on uh, Slido asks if uh, the Iran nuclear deal could be a model that uh, you have an agreement uh, with inspections and you have that uh, tied to a lifting of sanctions. Of course, the challenge with North Korea is they do have nuclear weapons as opposed to Iran. It's to prevent them from proceeding, presumably, on a nuclear weapons program. But if we're approaching you know, North Korea and hoping for denuclearization, is that a model that we could aspire to? Why don't I start uh, with Suzanne on this one? Absolutely a model. Um, with the caveats that you just mentioned, North, uh, North Korea has nuclear weapons. Iran has never possessed a single nuclear weapon. But even so, I think there's some lessons to be learned in terms of how to engage an adversary, a long-term adversary. And in fact, Biden has uh, said himself that he would look to the JCPOA process that was the Iran nuclear deal uh, as a potential model for a way forward with the North Koreans. Keep in mind before uh, we reached the JCPOA, there was a JPOA, which was an interim deal. So that indicates something about his thinking. Maybe an interim deal or a series of interim deals are the way to go. But um, the, the North Koreans themselves have learned some lessons uh, from the Iran uh, model, and they're not positive. Um, I think they have paid close attention to the Trump administration's withdrawal from the JCPOA, and they've drawn a lot of negative lessons. Uh, they saw the Iranian government complying in full compliance with their commitments, and Trump still reneged and violated the terms of the agreement. Um, so they will, um, I think that has spooked them. The other thing is uh, the Iranians, to get to that deal, one of the things they had to do was to close down the plutonium pathway to nuclear weapons. I mean, they literally and physically shuttered their uh, facility uh, in Iraq that produced plutonium uh, enrichment. 
And uh, this, in a lot of ways, could be seen as doing something irreversible, uh, disabling that facility. Um, it would take many years and substantial funds to bring that back online. So they see the Iranians have done this, something nearly irreversible, and the United States still pulled out of the deal. Uh, and I think this is making the North Koreans probably more reluctant to take any similar steps uh, to do things that are that um, close to reversible. So they're drawing negative lessons. Um, but I think as a process for diplomacy and negotiation, there are a lot of takeaways from how we work with the Iranians that could apply to North Korea to good use. Well, Victor, how do you see it? Is, is it a, a potential model? Um, <clears throat> I, I think potentially it is a model, but um, I have to say that, um, you know, as someone who worked on a denuclearization negotiation with North Korea, I was very interested to read the Iran deal when it came out. Um, and when I looked at it, I was completely um, blown over because I looked at the technical details of the agreement, um, the whatever, 100 pages and appendices and footnotes and everything. And not that I don't think it was a good agreement, but I looked at the detail in that agreement and I thought to myself, there is nobody on the North Korean side who could write an agreement like this. I mean, we could write it, but there's nobody on the North Korean side who could understand at a high enough policy level that could understand an agreement like this, right? In the Iran case, you know, you had Kerry and his counterpart, you had the, um, um, the uh, energy, you, know, like you had high level people, technical people who were empowered to do this sort of negotiation. If you look at the run up to the Singapore and all these other summits, you know, they talked about liaison office, they talked about all those other stuff. And when it came to nuclear weapons, anything having to do with nuclear weapons, the working level people, including Kim Young-chul, were saying, well, oh, we can't really talk about that. Only our leader can talk about that. So, you know, to go from something like that and think that you could create as detailed agreement as the JCPOA is just, to me, it looked really intimidating. I just, I thought to myself, is there anybody that I have met on the North Korean side who could negotiate something like this and who had the sort of the policy power, to, uh, who was empowered you know, by whether it was the foreign ministry, the um, um, uh, the military, you know, whatever group to, to be able to negotiate this and say, yes, this is right, or no, this is right, this is wrong. Really hard for me to imagine that that, that, could, be, that could be done. So. And Dave, how about your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I think the uh, Iran deal is already a model for North Korea in a negative cautionary tale um, because part of what they want to do is make sure that an agreement, and I think Victor used this phrase years ago, is they want a uh, administration proof or an election proof deal, meaning they would like a deal where they actually believe it will follow uh, a change in administrations. And so I think already the Iran deal is a cautionary tale. On the other side, uh, what I would say is that in many ways, we already have the outlines. I remember when uh, somebody in the Obama administration said, we're not buying that horse again. Uh, it sounded really tough and macho, but the fact is, yes, you are. If you want to deal with North Korea, we know what the deal looks like. It's a freeze for freeze. It's 
nukes for security guarantees, its inspections. It was done in 94. Victor did it again in 2007. That's what a deal looks like. You don't have to have a deal, but we know what it's going to look like. And so in many ways, the question isn't what would a deal look like? It's do we really want to have that type of a deal with North Korea? Um, and anytime we decide to go big and ask for it all, we're never going to get that deal because the North Koreans will look at the Iran deal and say, that's not going to happen. So I think, yeah, the Iran deal is potentially good, but we already know what a deal with North Korea looks like. So both sides know. The question is, can we get there? Well, thank you. We are coming, uh, kind of getting close to the end. Uh, we still have some good questions. One, an anonymous question on Slido asks, if we're not going to be able to solve the denuclearization problem, does this essentially guarantee you know, continuing cycles of tensions that we're unlikely to break that unless we can deal with the denuclearization? But if we can't deal with denuclearization, are we stuck with the other? So uh, not sure who to, I'll start with you, Victor. Uh, we so if the question is assuming we can't get North Korea to get rid of their weapons, what is this going to look like? So first, I think uh, something David said about 30, 45 minutes ago that uh, deterrence, the ability to deter North Korea, will not change. We'll be able to successfully deter North Korea from, you know, from um, a, a, a starting another Korean War or anything like that. I mean, I think that will that will still that will still be the case. Um, now, the question of whether it would be we'd fall back into cycles of provocation again goes back to my earlier point of um, what the political relationship looks like between these two countries. If it remains as it is now, yes, we will see cycles of provocations and diplomacy just like we've been seeing um, this year, uh, you know, the past few years and the past few decades. We'll be seeing, we'll be seeing the same sort of thing. But if... Um, you know, if there is if there is a some sort of fundamental change in the political relationship, uh, then um, then there's a better chance that we might not see those same uh, the we might not see those same cycles of provocation. You know, Suzanne, have any thoughts on the issue? Yeah, I think there is possible a possibility to make some progress. I mean, it would take a major change in mindset on the U.S. side, no matter who is president. Uh, and that would um, require framing any negotiation with the North Koreans as steps towards a peace regime, uh, an ending of hostile relations, uh, ending the current the war that is still in place. Um, that's a possibility. If you can say it's not constructive to frame it as peace versus denuclearization, then that's a first step. Uh, maybe instead look at them as two sides of the same coin. Don't look at it as, at, as if the U.S. is lowering the bar uh, if it turns its attention to dealing with a political transformation uh, first or in tandem. Uh, with denuclearization. Uh, inst instead, that such an approach like that would actually bring expectations back down to earth. So if there was a willingness to try that, um, I'm not optimistic that uh, uh, either a Trump or a Biden administration could think that way. But certainly, um, I think it might be willing, uh, we should be willing to try it. And I think it would get the attention of the North Koreans to say, um, this is a new approach. 
so. Well, thank you. We have a, 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 it'll probably be our last question. Jonathan and several others on Slido ask, is there a connection between uh, Kim Jong-un's strange absence uh, and in certain ways, continuing absence. We're not seeing him very much even after the initial return and the more aggressive position being taken you know, by him and by other officials. And let me suggest if we could make brief responses and wrap in any final comments you'd like to make uh, on this, and then we can you know, wrap everything up. So, well, Suzanne, why don't I start with you, and then we'll uh, proceed in the original order that everybody spoke. Yeah, I have really made an effort to resist on um, uh, commenting on Kim Jong-un's health because, frankly, no one really knows. Is it possible that uh, he is in dire straits? It's possible, I mean, um, that he has serious health uh, problems. Uh, and also that his sister is now being put forward as a potential um, partner or maybe even replacement. But that didn't just start. I mean, she was very active even in the Olympic diplomacy that was coordinated by President Moon of Seoul. So she has been on the scene for quite some time. Um, you know, when I look at what the North Koreans are doing now, first with the South and now pointing towards the United States, it does seem like um, a movie we've seen before. As I mentioned earlier, the noise is starting up again. Uh, we are in the midst of particularly contentious presidential re-election campaign. Um, and they're going to want to uh, make sure that no one's forgotten that they're there. Um, we'll have to see how far they go. For me, the big question is, are they going to go past those two red lines that they have informally agreed with Trump that they wouldn't? I don't think a nuclear test is in the cards, but possible ICBM test. And then how would the Trump administration um, react to that? And how would we manage a renewed crisis? And just to wrap up um, very quickly, thank you, Cato, for uh, putting this together and to Victor and Dave uh, for joining us. And I just wanna make a really strong case for um, whatever you think of what's happened over these last two years since Singapore, please don't say that diplomacy failed. Uh, when I'm on the Hill and I'm talking to some people up there, I hear that very often. And I think it is a mischaracterization. What we've seen over these last two years is a maximum pressure campaign that really provided no off-ramp for real diplomacy. So in my estimation, diplomacy with Kim Jong-un has not really been tested yet. You know, Victor, any uh, brief thoughts for uh, closing? Um, so in, in, with regard to the question, um, I think that the more aggressive positions adopted by North Korea, um, they might have something to do with in the internal situation. But I think the, the more direct uh, cause is uh, the fact that um, there is no diplomacy taking place and we are in an election year. And when you put those two things together, then all the data shows that North Korea will be more provocative. And so in that sense, you know, people say North Korea is unpredictable. They're actually not that unpredictable. They're actually quite predictable um, if you look at the data and you look at past, past behavior. So um, so that's what I think, uh, you know, is I think they are taking more aggressive positions and I think it has more to do with that, uh, that than anything else. Um, in terms of any, uh, you know, uh, 
Hey, uh, finally, final closing comment. I mean, again, this is two years ago today. Um, there were a lot of, I don't know if it, we, I would say high expectations, um, but we were all uh, watching what we thought would be potentially a new chapter in US uh, North Korea relations. Um, and, um, um, and I think, you know, even for some people who've been quite skeptical of North Korea's interest in diplomacy, there was even some hope that there could this time it could be it could be different. Um, unfortunately, it has not been, um, and this is not simply the fault of of, uh, of North Korea. It's also the fault of you know a Trump administration that had a pre has a president that wants to do diplomacy but doesn't actually want to prepare to do the work to map out a strategy, have a congressional strategy, you know, have have all these sorts of things um, that would make it that would make it a successful, um, a successful strategy. Um, and so in that sense, it is, you know, it is, uh, it is disappointing. But, uh, but, you know, there's still, I think there's, <laughs> thinking about, you know, I, as to reference what Suzanne said, thing about diplomacy is that you can always count on dip diplomacy to be helpful, right? Um, we teach diplomacy at Georgetown. We all always talk about diplomacy being helpful. Diplomacy, the whole purpose of diplomacy is to open up avenues where it looks like you've reached a dead end. And so I think um, so whether it's a, a you know, the Trump administration or a Biden administration, if it had been Bernie, Dave would have been in there doing this negotiation, and then we would have all we would have all been happy because Dave would have figured a way out of this. Maybe you got a couple minutes to wrap things up and finish us off. <laughs> sure. Um, uh, Victor stole my point about uh, how predictable North Korea is. No, I mean, uh, I, I largely agree with what's been said, right? Like, I don't think there's a big link between Kim Jong-un's uh, non-appearances. I don't even want to speculate as to why, whether it was COVID or health or anything else. Uh, but North Korea can be counted on to be provocative, running up to an election to be ready to see which way uh, the U.S. is going to go in terms of who they who they elect. Um, I'm not surprised that especially two years after uh, Singapore with from a North Korean perspective, whether we agree or not, that they had been ready to deal. They came back with nothing and they're still not testing, but they're getting antsy and willing to try and provoke a little more. So I'm not surprised at all. My larger point would simply be uh, to reiterate what I said earlier, which is North Korea is not a problem to be solved. There is no combination of sticks and carrots that is going to get North Korea to simultaneously denuclearize, open up the economy, and stop all its human rights abuses. That's never going to happen. So to set that up as a goal seems to me to be setting ourselves up for failure. Rather, I would prefer to see whoever becomes president look for a realistic strategy where we can make some progress and find a way to, frankly, have a way to live with North Korea because it's not going away. It's not going to disappear. Uh, and so I know that that's probably not likely to happen, but that is how I think we could realistically make some progress in U.S.-North Korea relations. So thank you uh, for inviting me and everybody else. It was really enjoyable. 
Well, I want to thank our three participants. I think this has been a wonderful discussion. It's been an extraordinary time in U.S.-North Korean relations. I've always argued that this president deserves credit for giving diplomacy a chance. It's unfortunate that he didn't understand the process better and that he didn't have people around him, I think, who were prepared to give him better advice and to move that process forward. So I want to thank Dave, Victor, and Suzanne for participating. I want to thank all of you in the audience for uh, you know, being with us. I apologize I couldn't get to all the questions. We had other very good questions. There are just so many issues for us to discuss. This will be up on the website later today. We encourage you to let uh, people know. Our hashtag is uh, C-A-T-O-F-P. You know, and uh, you know, encourage people to come watch uh, the, you know, the, uh, the repeat uh, performance if you'd like. And thank you again. I hope you'll come to other Cato web webinars in the future. Thank you very much.